So I've titled this evening's sermon, The Life-Giving Sword. The Life-Giving Sword. And we're going to be working through Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. I'm going to read that for us. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this evening, we're going to be dissecting this passage of Scripture to find out why we can have faith in what is revealed in God's Word. Why we should cling to God's Word. So, I am terrible with numbers. I've always been terrible with numbers. In my second year at university at Nelson Mandela, I had a class, Economics 202, Microeconomics, the worst of the worst. <laughs> I can see the students are like, oh, I know that. And I was barely passing. I was scraping through Economics 202. And to be honest, it was all my fault. It was all on me. I wasn't, <laughs> okay. I wasn't putting in the extra hours behind the scenes to try and understand these difficult um, graphs and these theories and these principles. And I hardly paid attention in class. <laughs> And I somehow made it to my final exam, yes, but I got smashed. If I can recall, after trying to wipe this out of my memory bank, I got 27%. 27%. I don't know why you guys are clapping. Maybe because you guys are relating to it or... Yeah, so I got 27%, but I got a chance to redo the module in my third year, and by God's grace, I passed. <laughs> but I do think that sometimes we might approach God's Word, we might approach the Bible in the same way that I approached Economics 202, that we don't really put in the extra time to read through it and try to understand the difficult parts or maybe we don't read it at all, and we don't know what's going on. And right now, life might seem like it's going good. You know, you're passing, you're making it through. But when you get to the final exam, when life really starts to get difficult, and you haven't put in this effort to, to learn about God's Word, then you would have a shallow faith rooted in a shallow relationship with Jesus Christ because you really never knew him. You only knew parts of him. So Hebrews 4, 
chapter 12, verses 12 to 16, is going to help us and warns us and guides us and tells us why we need to cherish the Word of God. Why we need to do the opposite of what I did with Economics 202 and really spend time in this Word. So in order for us to have a good understanding of what Hebrews 4, verse 12 to 16 is really about, we need to know to whom this book was written and we need to know why this book was written. So when this book was written, there were many Jews who were converting from traditional Judaism, which believed that in order to receive salvation, in order to be saved, you needed to work and obey the law of Moses. Meaning that your salvation was really your own responsibility. That it was in your own hands. And they were converting from traditional Judaism to Christianity, which believed that it was your salvation was all based on your faith alone in Christ. And these Jews, we'll call them the converts, these converts were under immense pressure from these traditional Jews who were trying to persuade them and make them think that this faith you have in Christ, that it cannot and it will not save you. You should abandon Christianity and this newfound faith that you have. So the author is writing this book to motivate and to strengthen the faith of these new converts, to tell them that you should have faith in Christ, that you should believe what is written in God's word. You don't need to go back to that. And I promise you that it is worth it. So, when we look at um, the story of how these Jews were wanting to, were um, converting from traditional Judaism to this Christianity, we need to understand that this wasn't some easy thing that they were doing. That when they converted, that they were leaving behind communities, that they were being rejected and excommunicated from their families because of the faith that they had in Christ. So it was not an easy thing for them to do. They would lose relationships, they would lose family, and they would lose reputation. It was not just an awkward conversation around the dinner table, around the family dinner table. This was serious, and this caused them, this faith in Christ caused them to lose everything. So the author is explaining in Hebrews 4, verse 12 to 16, he's going to reveal three things to these new converts, these new Christian converts, three things that will motivate them and strengthen them and encourage them to cherish the word of God and to cling to it and to hold on to this new faith that they have found. So we need to realize that at the time, these new converts would have never seen or heard Jesus. That they were hearing about the teaching of Jesus for the first time through eyewitnesses. So they didn't have this firm faith that they saw Jesus Christ speaking and teaching. They didn't have a relationship with him like these other guys did. So it really was a difficult step for them to take from this lifelong devotion that them and their families and their families and their generations would have had. So what are these three things that are revealed to us? What three things does the author of Hebrews reveal to these new converts that will strengthen their faith and keep them firm in the faith. So we're going to dive into 
the first um, verse, which says, For the word of God is living and active. And we see that the first word that is used in verse 12 is for, meaning that something significant has just been mentioned in the previous verse, in verse 11. So what does it say in Hebrews 4, verse 11? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And the rest that is being mentioned here is God's rest. It's salvation. It's eternal life. And the disobedience that is mentioned here at the end of the verse is referring back to when the Israelites were in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, where they were disobeying and not trusting in God's word. And what was God's word to them in, in the wilderness? It was that I, God, will provide for you. I will sustain you. And ultimately, I, God, will lead you and guide you into the promised land, into my rest, into God's rest. But these Israelites did not believe the promise that God made for them. And because of this, they did not enter into the promised land. They did not enter into God's rest. So the author here is urging these new Jewish converts that do not be like these Israelites in the wilderness. Have faith in the word and the promise of God. Because when you have faith in the word and the promise of God and what he says to you in his word, you will be able to enter into God's rest. You will be able to enter into eternal life, into salvation. So then he goes on in verse 12 to verse 16 to reveal these three things. What's the first thing that he reveals? Verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So what this means is that the word of God, when it is preached, when it is spoken, when it is read, when it is thought about, when it is written down, that it is always working, that it is living and that it is active. It is not a dead word. It is constantly and continually working. And then we see that the word sword, two-edged sword, the original Greek word for the two-edged sword is makaira, makaira. And this was a large knife that was used to cut open, to split open animals during sacrifices. So as this word, as this verse is being read to these new Jewish converts, they would have immediately pictured God's word as a knife that has the ability to cut things open. And what is the purpose of this word? What is the purpose of this knife that is being revealed here? It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we see here that the word, that the knife, has this ability to cut deeper than any other knife, than any other sword, to the point where it reveals your true nature, your inner being. It reveals exactly who you are, your intentions and your thoughts. And no other sword or no other knife 
can do that. And then verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Who does the word of God expose? Who does the word of God cut open, slice open? Everyone. Everyone will be in submission to the word of God. So the author has revealed the purpose of the word of God and the power of the word of God, that it can reveal things. It can reveal our thoughts and our intentions. And what does it say in verse 14? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's this thing mentioned here, this high priest. So what is a high priest? What is the purpose of a high priest? What do they do? A high priest was someone that made sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel to purify and cleanse them from their sin. But we see here in Regia that this high priest, Jesus Christ, is not like the other high priests. He is a great high priest. And why is he a great high priest? The ordinary high priests would obviously be human and they would obviously also sin and therefore they had to make sacrifices not only for the people but for themselves as well. This high priest being the son of God went through the exact same things the Israelites went through. He was tempted. He went through, this, he went through pain, more pain and more temptation than they ever would have gone through but he did not sin. Meaning that he only had to make a sacrifice for his people, not for himself. But why should these new Jewish converts, why should they have faith in this high priest? Why can't they just have faith in the other high priest? What makes this high priest so much greater? And this is actually revealed to us in the first chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one, verse one to four. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So these new Jewish converts would have clearly seen how inferior these other high priests are compared to this great high priest, Jesus Christ. So why would you not rather cling on to this high priest to have faith and trust in this high priest? So we've seen now that the author has revealed, number one, the purpose and the power of the word that it exposes everyone to God. Number two, he's revealed this insanely great and awesome high priest. And then he says in verse 16, because of these things, because of the power of the word of God, because of the purpose of the word of God, and because of this great high priest, you need to do this. In verse 16, 
He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this would have shocked the Jews hearing this for the first time. This statement is so contradictory and so against and so false compared to everything that they've believed. Because they've believed that they have been bound by the law, by the weight of the law, that they need to earn their grace, that they need to work for their grace. But here, this author is coming along and he says, no, you can know if you are saved. It is not through your works. It is not through your effort. It is not through your obedience. You simply have to come to the throne of grace and receive it. And this is completely shocking to the Jews hearing this for the first time. Now we've had three important things revealed to us. Number one, the purpose and the power of the word to cut us open and reveal everything about us to God. Number two, this great high priest. And number three, that salvation is all because of grace. It's all a gift. And it is not up to us. It is not our work. But why are these three things so important? How come this author is banking that these three things revealed here in the scripture is going to motivate and strengthen these Jewish converts? How come these three things are going to keep them firm in the faith and motivate them to not abandon Christ, to not abandon their previous faith, or their new faith, sorry. And we see if we do the exact opposite of what I did with Economics 202, and we actually read the Scriptures, we pour ourselves over the Word of God, and we spend time to meditate on it and work through it, then three incredibly important things are revealed to us. Three life-changing, inescapable truths are made clear to us. So what are these three truths that are revealed to us? We see when we read through the first verse in Hebrews 4, chapter 12, that this beautiful, vivid picture is painted for us of what happens when we read the Word of God. That like a hunter that cuts open an animal, everything about us is revealed to God. Everything that is in us, our thoughts, our intentions, our inwards, our heart, our character, our nature, everything is revealed to Him. But what does He see? What intentions does He see? What is made known to God when he looks at you, when he cuts you open with his word? And actually see what he sees in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 18. And it says the following. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So when God cuts you open with the conviction and the power of his word, all that he sees is sinfulness. All that he sees is your lustful, adulterous thoughts, your wretchedness, your misery, your anger, but above all what he sees is a hatred for God. Wow, that has just punched me in the gut. I've just been ridden over by a truck because what? I thought I was good. No one is good. I mean, I'm not really a bad person. I don't lie that much. I don't commit adultery. I mean, I don't murder or steal. No one is righteous. This goes against every single thing that the word has, that the world has ever told us about ourselves. Telling us that we are good enough. You just make some bad decisions. You don't need to change. That God loves you just the way that you are. But this is not what is revealed in the word of God. I mean, when I read the Bible, I read that Christ came to die for the ungodly, not for the righteous. He didn't come to die because I was good enough. He came to die because I'm sinful, because I couldn't save myself. And the worst part of all, not that that sucked enough, is that we cannot enter into God's rest without being cleansed by someone. We need to be purified, we need to be cleansed, and we need to be completely clean from this sin-ridden body. But we can't do this ourselves. We can't tear ourselves open, clean our hearts, clean everything about us. We're not good. The Bible just told us that we can't do that. So who, where's our salvation? Where is our hope? And the hope lies in the Word of God. The second truth that is revealed to us, now that we know that we need a Savior, that is truth number one. The second truth that is revealed to us is that Christ is our savior. Christ is our savior. And you know the beautiful thing about God's word? That although it cuts you open, reveals everything about you to this holy God, reveals all your sinfulness, all your wretchedness, all your dirt, all your filth, every mistake you've made in your life is poured out in front of God in this moment that he cuts you open with his word but he does not turn away from you. He does not, regardless of your sin that is in front of him, he does not turn his face away from you. 
in his word, he is gracious enough to reveal to us that we need to be cleansed. But above that, he is merciful enough to reveal to us who the cleanser is, how we can be cleansed. He doesn't just leave us dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. He gives us a way out. And this way out was mentioned earlier in verse 14 to 15. This great high priest, Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ lived a life that is impossible for us to follow along with. Impossible for us to live the same way that he did. He went through more pain. He went through more anguish. He went through more suffering. He went through more temptation than we will ever go through in our entire lives. Yet, what does it say at the end of the verse? He did not sin. He did not sin. And then after this, he goes and makes purification for our sins. Purification for the sins of the world. But this time, this time, it is not an animal that is being sacrificed. This time he is sacrificing himself. He is sacrificing himself for the sins of the world, for people that do not deserve it. He was nailed to a cross, a cross that we should have died on. He died on the cross in our place. He, was, he died, he was buried, and three days later he rose again, declaring that through his resurrection, that all sin, past, all sin, present, and all sin, future, has been wiped away. He has declared that through this, the sin of the world is gone. Now that we know this, we know that we need a Savior. We know that the Savior is Jesus Christ that has been so clearly revealed to us. What do we do now? What do we do now? The third truth that is revealed to us is that salvation is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. You see, in Hebrews 4, verse 16, we read the most comforting words that we could ever read. That in order to receive this eternal rest, in order to enter into salvation, into God's rest, what do we need to do? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is not based on how good we are. It is not based on how obedient we are. We do not need to be better. You do not need to be greater. You simply need to approach the throne of grace and receive it. You simply need to approach the throne of grace and receive it. Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9 emphasizes this point. It's a great, great verse. Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, not a result of works that no one may boast. Here, Paul is boldly proclaiming, there's nothing that you need to do. You do not need to be more obedient to earn the grace of God. And you know what is so comforting about this verse, verse 16, about these words that the author speaks over these Jewish converts? What is so amazing about it is that we do not need to feel ashamed when we approach the throne of grace. That we do not need to fear rejection by God when we approach the throne of grace. That we do not need to feel as though we need to be better or greater or more obedient to approach the throne of grace. That we simply need to ask for forgiveness and it will be given to you. He will never turn you away when you ask for grace with an intentional heart, knowing that you need it. And you know what the powerful, beautiful thing is about our God that we serve? Is that when we have faith in this great high priest, Jesus Christ, that he no longer sees your sin, that he no longer sees your wretchedness, he no longer sees all these mistakes that you've done, that you're making now and that you're going to make. He sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter. He sees you through his son's eyes as a pure and holy child of God. How gracious is the God that we serve that he reveals to us in his word that we need to be cleansed. He doesn't just leave us there. That he reveals to us through his word who that savior is that cleanses us. It is Jesus Christ. It has always been Jesus Christ. It was and always will be Jesus Christ. I don't see my name written here in verse 13 to 15 saying, Nico, you are the savior. You are the one that needs to clean. It is all the work of Christ and it always will be. And through that, through revealing that it is Jesus Christ that is the Savior, on top of that, through his mercy, he says that you, need to, you don't need to bring anything to the table. You just need to come as you are. I'll do the work. I've done the work already on the cross of Calvary. You don't have to do anything. The victory is yours when you have faith in me, not in yourself. Is this the Christ that we serve? Is this the Christ that we believe, that we glorify? Not that he's a partner in our walk, but that he is the shepherd and we just follow along as the sheep. We need to understand and to cherish these three truths. Because the response that you make towards these three truths is the most important response to the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. 
by having faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, not in who the world tells you to have faith in, not in who culture tells you to have faith in, who the Word tells you to have faith in, you will enter into God's rest. You will enter into eternal life, into eternal salvation with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So as we enter into the last stretch of the year, times are tough. Students, you're finishing off your exams, whether it's your first year, second year, third year, repeat of the second year, maybe repeat of the third year. Where are you going to place your hope? You can replace your hope in what the Word of God reveals to us, in Christ. Whether you're going through financial issues at home, who are you going to place your hope in? In Christ. Whether you're going through divorce, if it's a breakup, if it's abuse, whatever it is, you're placing your hope in Jesus Christ. Because He alone is the one that can carry you through everything that you've gone through and will go through. And I promise you, you will go through a lot. So as we end off, what are the three things that we need to remember? What are the three things that this author makes so clear to us and to the Jewish converts that would help them cling to their faith in Christ? That would help them to not abandon their faith in Christ and not go back to their vomit, not go back to this traditional view of obeying and obeying and obeying and not knowing whether God is in your corner. It's to know that you need help right now. Not tomorrow, not the next day, right now you need help. To know that it is only Christ who can give you that help and then all you need to do is walk into his presence and ask him for it. It's all you need to do. So I'd like to close off for us in prayer. We can close our eyes. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your graciousness. We thank you that you have revealed to us through your word that we need a Savior and that you've shown us clearly who that Savior is. And you've made it easy for us to get towards that Savior, to inherit eternal life. Thank you for your grace every single day. Thank you that you do not turn away from us when we are sinful. Thank you that you do not close your eyes and push us away. Thank you that you will never reject us when we approach you for grace. Thank you for your faith, your loyalty, and that you will never let us go. I pray that through your son, Jesus Christ, that we will receive the motivation and the energy to push to the end of this year through all the hardships that we've gone through, that we will keep our eyes fixed on the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, the Sovereign King, Christ the Conqueror. I pray this in your almighty, merciful and gracious name. 
Amen.